So we've been talking about God's providence, or, or the providence of God, divine providence, whatever you want to call it. So what is providence? May I remind you, it, it has to do with God's guidance and His governing over all of His creation. It's related to God's sovereignty, and of course in sovereignty you have the word reign. He reigns supreme over all of His creation. But some people think, well, that's Old Testament stuff. You know, that was a long time ago. God doesn't operate that way today. Well, here's my question for you today to consider. Is providence still God's primary method of operation today? It really gets down to your theology. Do you believe God changes? Can God change? And so to answer this question, what I want to do is take a a quick survey trip through the narrative of the early church. And of course, we have a divinely inspired book in our Bible from the Holy Spirit himself that shows us the history of the first century church. So are you ready? Let's take a survey through the book of Acts regarding the activities of God's providence. And so as we tour, as we touring through this book, we're just going to hit a few highlights here, look at some timeless truths or principles that are relevant for you and me, even today, they're still relevant. And may I remind you, well, maybe this isn't a reminder, I learned a, a while ago, can't remember who I learned it from even now, that when you look at the narratives, the stories of Scripture, God has put them there for a reason. Somebody said it this way, that, that the narratives of Scripture is, is a declaration by God of God. In other words, God wants you to, those aren't just interesting stories so that, you know, you can learn something interesting. It's, no, God is wants you to learn something about Him. So these timeless truths are all about Him. As you, as we look at Acts, uh, keep that in mind. What is God up to here? What is He doing? So here's the first timeless truth we're going to see. We're going to be starting here in Acts chapter 5. So here it is, that God may intervene directly in the affairs of His church and in the individual lives of His people. God is not just a distant God who who created everything and then just stands back and lets it kind of just go on its own. We see that over and over again. Look at Acts 5. Here's one example where he's He is directly involved in the affairs of His church. Acts 5 verse 1. Says uh, there, there was a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira. He sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds, and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, "Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land?" While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all those who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. 
Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. She said, Yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they carried, or, uh, came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. So we learn here God's intervening in the affairs of His church, even in the individual lives of some people who claim to be part of this church. So let me ask you, my friends, who struck Ananias and Sapphira? Peter didn't do it. In fact, did you notice the text says Peter didn't even ask God to do it? (laughs) The Lord Jesus Christ Himself steps in as head of the church He does it invisibly and providentially in these proceedings. Now, what effect would it have on you and our church and on the lives of people in the church if Jesus governed our church as actively and directly today as he did this particular church here in the first century? Would it have an effect on you? It probably You'd probably have a similar reaction that the people in verse 11 had, right? Verse 11 says, The great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. I dare say we'd have a similar reaction. So this passage is designed to provoke or provide ample warning against presumptuously daring to test the reality of the Holy Spirit's knowledge and His presence in the church. He is real. He is alive and he is a real person and he is at work in his church and he has not changed may we learn his his intervention is direct in the affairs of his church and even in individual lives well there's some other timeless truths we can learn from scripture here number two that god is free to alter circumstances in ways that are humanly impossible Keyword there, humanly impossible, though. So look at Acts 5, verse 17. Look at verse 17. So this is dealing with the apostles when they were arrested and eventually freed. Verse 17 says, The high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. When they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported, We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, 
wondering what this would come to. <laughs> Interesting. So even in the book of Acts, we, get, we see God deploying his messengers, angels. And he frequently employs angels as his agents of providence. So God's deliverances may rarely be as dramatic in, in our own experiences as they were here. Uh, although the angels are still at work today. Nevertheless, his ability to alter our circumstances is still intact. And so church history is filled with all kinds of testimony to God's providence and to this very truth that God is free to alter circumstances in ways that are humanly impossible. And I've been, uh, oh, I just recently finished a, a book by uh, one of my favorite missionaries, John Patton. And uh, John Patton's a good example of, of a missionary whose God worked in his life in amazing ways. You'll see, uh, of course, he went to what was at the time called the New Hebrides, which is now Vanuatu. He went there during the 19th century, and Patton went there knowing that uh, it was very dangerous. In fact, two of the first missionaries that ever went there were only on the shore for just a few seconds before the cannibals killed them and ate them. And he knew that, but he went there anyway. And so he's no stranger to traumatic experiences with these savage cannibals. On the, on a, the first island he went to was called Tana. And in 1862, he recounted uh, in his autobiography, I read a condensed version if you're interested, he faced a lot of close encounters with death at the hands of very hostile islanders. And here's what he wrote on one account. I was fascinated by this book and how God providentially saved his life over and over again. Here's, here's just one account um, I'm reading from his book. Quote, Noar, the converted island chief, urged me to sit down beside him and pray to Jehovah God. For he knew if God did not send deliverance now, we were dead men. We prayed as one can only pray when in the jaws of death and on the brink of eternity. We felt that God was near and omnipotent to do what seemed best in his sight. When the savages were about 300 yards off at the foot of a hill leading up to the village, Noar, the chief, touched my knee saying, Missy, Missy, Jehovah is hearing. They are standing still. We saw a messenger or herald running along the approaching multitude, delivering some tidings as he passed, and then disappeared into the bush. To our amazement, the host began to turn and slowly marched back in great silence and entered the remote bush at the head of the island. Noah and his people were in ecstasies, crying out, Jehovah has heard Missy's prayer. Jehovah has protected us and turned them away. Well, that's just one of, of many encounters, <laughs> close encounters with death they had. And so we learn sometimes God alters things, alters events. A third timeless truth we learn from Acts is God may deliver His people through aid, even from their enemies. Even from their enemies. Look at Acts chapter 5 again. Look at verse 33. Verse 33 when they heard this, 
they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you're about to do with these men. For before these days, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. When they called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and then let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. So here in Acts 5, you have the Sanhedrin, which, by the way, was basically the Jewish supreme court of that day. It's ready to pass a sentence of execution on the Apostle Peter and the other apostles. Notice the Sanhedrin's reaction to the bold and convicting testimony of these men is in verse 33. It said, verse 33 says, They were enraged and wanted to kill the apostles. So what does God do? God steps in and uses Gamaliel who was a high-ranking Pharisee on the council, and he urges them to show some caution. He counseled restraint. And his words, did, by the way, did not show sympathy toward Christianity because he was a Jew. Nevertheless, Gamaliel's pragmatic moderation worked to the apostles' benefit here, demonstrating that God can raise up unlikely defenders for his people, even from people who seem to be God's enemies. Well, we see this happening over and over, not just in the book of Acts. We see it happen throughout church history. One of my heroes of the faith demonstrated this point very well, I think. God ended up using the enemies of Christianity and of God's truth to only further his work. I think we can see it quite well in the life of William Tyndale. William Tyndale was English, lived from 1494 to 1536, greatly used by God to help give us the English translation of our Bible, to multiply the understanding of the Bible and the accessibility of their Bibles. His goal was to, to get it into the common man and their language, as he said, so every plowboy in England would know the Scriptures. The problem was, those kind of translations into the, to the modern everyday language of England was actually illegal at that time. <laughs> you had to have the official permission of the king as well as the church authorities. 
And neither one actually liked William Tyndale's effort. In fact, William Tyndale had gone to see the bishop in London and was rejected. So what is he supposed to do? He can't get uh, the king and, and the uh, church authority to, to give him permission to do this. So William Tyndale forsakes his country, goes to Europe, sacrificed a lot in the process, and was punished <laughs> uh, for basically proceeding without permission. Eventually, he was executed. But nevertheless, William Tyndale proceeded. He believed he was doing what God wanted him to do. And so he exiled himself from his native England to go to Europe to work on translating the Bible into the English language. Well, you, you may know this story, so I'm not going to go too, too much into depth here, but these Bibles were consider, considered illegal. And so all these illegal books were, were being smuggled into England. And God was using guys like Arthur Packington, who was a, a London merchant, to help get these in. And eventually one day Arthur, uh, the, the London merchant, heard about the bishop's idea to, to get Tyndale's Bibles that were coming into England and, and burn them. And, and the bishop of, of England was paying a lot of money for these. In fact, four times the value of what they were actually worth. It's it's an amazing story, but uh, of course Tyndale he found out about this. He was actually excited because he was using the surplus money to to pay his debts off, and then to pay for more translation work to be done. So what one person considered, you know, you might you might consider it evil. God was using it for good, and so Tyndale was excited about this and. Yes, there were a lot of Bibles burned. And eventually Tyndale was captured and was burned at the stake. But Tyndale's dying prayer was, Lord, open the King of England's eyes. And I love this story because just one year later, one year after Tyndale's death, God did open the King's eyes. And the King of England granted permission for the publication of an entire Bible in the English language. And eventually the king ordered that there should be a Bible in every church building. And praise God, because God makes destructive plans His tools. God accomplished His purpose. There's another timeless truth we can learn from Acts. Number four, we see God may choose not to intervene, even in behalf of His choicest servants. Even in behalf of His choicest servants. Look at Acts chapter 7, verse 54. Verse 54. Of course, this is the story of Stephen. And here's what it says in verse 54. Now, when they heard these things, his preaching, you can read about that in the previous context. Stephen did a good job of giving the gospel there. Anyway, but when they heard these things, they were enraged. And they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they 
were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. So despite many traumatic examples of deliverance, what's God doing here? See, God doesn't always choose to intervene. Stephen met what some people might call an untimely demise, an untimely death. But my friends, my friends remember this. Martyrdom, martyrdom is no less providential than God's deliverance. Martyrdom is no less providential than God's deliverance. These kinds of deaths are neither a failure on God's part, and it is certainly not a victory on Satan's part. They're a part of the outworking of God's all-wise and always good purposes. Remember, God always does what's best. He does what's best for His honor and glory and for your good. Some people have said that the safest place to be is in the center of God's will. No. (laughs) Read the book of Acts. Was Stephen in the center of God's will? Yes. (laughs) So, I have a better way of saying that statement. I've heard that statement before. You know, the safest place to be is in the center of God's will. Really? Was Jesus in the center of God's will? Here's the way I prefer to say it. That the most fulfilling, joyful, and peaceful place to be is in the center of God's will. It's not necessarily the safest place to be. And so, my friends, this is what you might call biblical realism. See, our death is as much a matter of God's providence as our life. It's all part of His providence. It may seem tragic. It might even seem accidental to some. But God's providence rules over these so-called tragedies and over these so-called accidents. In fact, I want you to see what happens even after Stephen dies. And here comes the next timeless truth, number five. That God is capable of working in people we would never expect, even through events that seem to us tragic, senseless, and counterproductive to the cause of Christ. His name has already been mentioned in chapter 7. But look at chapter 8, verse 1. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentations over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women, committed them to prison. Now in chapter 7, Saul's name was mentioned there in regard to the stoning of Stephen. And he's probably the last person in whom many would expect God to be working. But here he is, he's a consenting witness to the death of Stephen. Do you think any believers, by the way, suspected God might be working in Saul's heart? A lot of people didn't expect that to be happening. I don't think so. I, as, you, as I read this, I find great comfort in this, by the way, because 
You and I have no idea what God is up to. What is God doing in the hearts and lives of people around us? Even people, you would say, man, that's, that is the, the hardest hearted person. You've got a stone heart. The, the person's immovable. There's no way they're going to change. We look at those people and say, well, they're hopeless. Are they? Well, that's what people said about Saul. They said, Saul's hopeless. I mean, this is, can you get any more devout and passionate than that guy was? Totally convinced that he was right. But God changed his heart, didn't he? So what do we see here? God is capable of working in people like Saul. People you wouldn't expect. <laughs> well, let's move on. Timeless truth number six. We see God uses persecution and affliction to accomplish his purposes for and through us. God works through the persecution, through the trials, through the affliction. He's accomplishing His purposes. So look at verse 3 here. Same chapter, verse 8, chapter 8. Again, look at verse 3. Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house, and he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Look at verse 4. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. So what is God doing here? God is using persecution to accomplish His purposes. Historically, persecution has, has been the wind, if you will, of God's providence. What is He doing? He's scattering the people. Instead of them doing the holy huddle in Jerusalem, he's using the persecution to scatter them. And along with them goes the seed of the word. Just like wind can scatter seed, God is doing it with his word. And instead of smothering the gospel, persecution succeeded only in spreading it. Those of you who are firefighters or want to be firefighters, you know, if you have a fire, let's use the fire illustration here. Is it wise to try to put a fire out by dropping a big rock on it? Is that a good idea? you got a big fire, right? Imagine that you get a raging fire going, oh, I'm going to put it out by dropping a rock on it. Is that a good idea? No. <laughs> uh, what, what are you probably going to accomplish? You say, I want to put the fire out, so I drop a rock on it. Uh, bad idea, right? In the process, you're going to just, all the... You're going to have sparks just going everywhere, right? You're probably going to start more fires in the process. But it's interesting, this is exactly what God does in spreading His Word, in spreading the Christians. It's like He drops a rock <laughs> to spread them out so that the fire is not just here, but it, it goes elsewhere. And so God used persecution and affliction to accomplish His purposes for and through us. Number seven, another timeless truth in chapter eight here is that God may direct us to minister in unpromising places, in unlikely situations with apparent minimal potential for his own purposes. We have an interesting story here in Acts chapter eight. Look at verse 26. Verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, 
Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. Notice what the Holy Spirit says here. He says this is a desert place. Not a lot of people. It's a desert place. Did Philip obey? Verse 27. He rose and went. But there's a person here. There was an Ethiopian. A eunuch. A court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot. And he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the Spirit said to Philip, Go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, How can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? He commanded the chariot to stop, And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and he passed through. He preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. In this story here, God providentially directs Philip and an Ethiopian to intersect at a very unlikely spot. Remember, the Bible said it was a desert place. It was under unusual circumstances. Remember, this man was no ordinary individual. He served as the royal treasurer for the queen of Ethiopia, which is in northeast Africa. So just think how God may have used this man to extend the gospel into the African continent. Who knows what happened exactly. But we can think of some valid arguments why Philip could have argued with God. Why he he may have offered to, you know, to tell God, hey, you know, there's revival taking place here. Why should I go into a desert place? (laughs) There's people here and you're doing a great work. I need to be here. He could have argued with God, but he didn't. He obeyed. I mean, why leave a thriving and promising work in Samaria where he seemingly needed, he's being used of God to go to some desert place? Why go into such a sparsely populated area? But But Philip was obedient to God's leading and praise God. The gospel spread into the African continent. 
Another timeless truth we see in chapter 9 is that God may intervene in the lives and affairs of people in spectacular, unexpected, extraordinary ways if He chooses. Now, remember, God doesn't always do this. But look what God did in chapter 9 with the conversion of this guy we've already read about by the name of Saul. Chapter 9, verse 1, it says, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. Falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now this is an unusual situation. But this unusual situation with Saul demonstrates an important and timeless truth. That God is free and He is also fully able to break into time, to break into space... And he's able to intervene in people's lives when he wants to. Now, this event was not the first time God had done this. And by the way, nor is it the last time. But this is what God chose to do. Uh, There is a warning that comes with this. We shouldn't always expect God to operate in this manner. But in this case, he did. And so, again, we see God operating sometimes in in amazing ways, spectacular, unexpected, extraordinary ways. One of my favorite stories has to do with the death of the five missionaries by the Aka Indians way back in 1956. You'll see pictures of them here. Here's their names. You may have read uh, Elizabeth Elliot's book, Through the Gates of Splendor. You may have read the book by, by the son of Nate Saint. The End of the Spear. They also made a movie out of that. So their names are Roger Udarian, Ed McCulley, Pete Fleming, Nate Saint, and Jim Elliott. But you may not have heard the rest of the story. See, 33 years after 1956, Olive Fleming, who got remarried, Olive, who was the widow of Pete there, who at the time was remarried, returned back to the country of Ecuador, and she actually journeyed back to the very spot where her first husband was murdered. It's an interesting story. Uh, she wrote about it. She, she said that, that their group was led by two Indian guides named Kimo and his wife Dawa. Kimo had been one of the murderers. Dawa had watched the massacre from the edge of the jungle. Both of them had uh, since been converted. In fact, much of the village was converted. And and in the course of recounting the events, Dawa and Kimo related that after the missionaries had been killed, all the Indians heard singing. 
You say, who is singing? <laughs> well, it wasn't the five men singing. In fact, Dawah said that their dead bodies were lying on the beach. So it wasn't them singing. They knew it wasn't them singing. So who was singing? Well, Dawah pointed behind us, she says. She swept her arms over the trees as she spoke. Something had happened over the jungles. After the men were killed, Dawa in the woods and Kimo on the beach heard singing. And as they looked up over the tops of the trees, they saw a large group of people. And they were all singing, and it looked as if there was a hundred flashlights. They didn't know how else to describe it. They didn't know what was really going on. But they said it was very bright lights. The lights were flashing. And then all of a sudden the lights disappeared. And the singing stopped. And a host of people stopped singing. They had all seen it. They didn't know what they had seen at the time, though. Kimo and Dawa had not made up the story. And, and uh, Olive said uh, in her book, uh, the name of her book, by the way, is called Unfolding Destinies. She, she says here that we guess that most likely they had been terrified by the vision that they had seen and didn't want to talk about it when they were first asked what had happened. She says probably it took years and years of good Bible teaching for them to figure out what had happened. But it nevertheless had a profound impact on their eventual conversion to Christianity. When Pete and the other men died that particular Sunday in 1956, no one thought that God would choose the gory site of their martyrdom to display His power to the Aka Indians. And so God was working, she says, God was working in ways Pete had never anticipated. I love the story. of. It's a sad story, but nevertheless, it's a glorious story. That God used the martyrdom of five men, five missionaries, to bring a group of people to himself. But this passage here, the conversion of the Apostle Paul here in Acts, comes with a word of warning. See, we shouldn't look for the spectacular. A lot of people are looking for the spectacular, aren't they? They want God to work in in the spectacular ways we see like this. Few people have had Damascus Road experiences, and so the fact that God is free to reveal Himself and accomplish His purposes in unexpected ways does not legitimize all that is reported as spectacular. See, we shouldn't be gullible, but Christians should not be surprised when God chooses to do the spectacular. All right, We need to be balanced on this. Don't be surprised if God does. But we shouldn't always expect God to do the spectacular. So what do we do with the doctrine of divine providence? We've seen some amazing timeless truths here in the first part of the book of Acts. Well, some people just kind of sit around. If they believe in divine providence or the sovereignty of God, they just sit around and do nothing because God is sovereign. He reigns supreme over all of His creation, including me and all the events that happened in my life, so I'm just going to do nothing. In fact, there's a very famous phrase I've heard from people who claim to be Christians. They say, just let go and let God. You ever heard that one? Let go and let God. Is that the kind of attitude that we need? <laughs> That's not a helpful attitude. Uh, do we need to have this attitude that all I need is my faith? Uh, really? <laughs> Well, here's what Charles Spurgeon, the great 
London, England Baptist preacher, he wisely said one day, quote, Faith in God's providence, instead of repressing our energies, excites us to diligence. We labor as if all depended upon us, and then we fall back upon the Lord with the calm faith which knows that all depends upon Him. End quote. There's the proper balance. There's a biblical balance. So did you notice the correct balance here? Do you need faith? Absolutely. We walk by faith and not by sight, Galatians says. But what's the object of your faith? Your faith is, of course, it's only as good as the object is of the faith. And so if your faith is in anything other than God, you actually have a hopeless faith, or at best a weak faith. And so, my friends, here's the other side of the coin, if you will. See, we need to be diligent. We need to be diligent. See, the Bible says it's actually wrong for us to sit around doing nothing. The Bible calls that the sin of laziness, or you're being a sloth, you're slothful. So here's the here's a good verse to remember. Romans 12, verse 11. I'll put it on here for you. Romans 12, 11 says, Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. And in that verse there, zeal, by the way, refers to whatever believers do in their supernatural living. Whatever is worth doing in the Lord's service is worth doing with enthusiasm, to do it carefully, do it with passion. The Apostle Paul admonished the Galatians in chapter 6, verse 10. He says, so then, as we have opportunity, it's the next verse on the screen, he says, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. So, you read the scripture, you're going to find there's no room for slothfulness, for laziness in the Lord's work. If you're a Christian, it's a sin for you to sit around doing nothing. <laughs> Don't say, well, I believe in a sovereign God, therefore I'm going to do nothing. Well, you can say that, but it's not right. There's no room for that. A lot of verses mention this. For example, Ecclesiastes 9 Verse 10 says, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol. That's the great. So whatever we do for the Lord, we do it in this present life. Laziness is a horrible thing, by the way. See, why, why is laziness a sin? Well, you're, you're, God's not lazy, number one. God is a working, creating God. But laziness is a horrible thing because not only is it preventing good from taking place and being done, but it even allows evil to prosper. For example, let me give you a couple scriptures here on the screen to prove this. Ephesians 5, verse 15 says, Look carefully how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time. Why? Because the days are evil. Proverbs also teaches against slothfulness and laziness. For example, it says, Whoever is slack in his work is a brother to him who destroys. You don't want to be a brother to somebody who destroys. That's evil. How do you become a brother to somebody who destroys? Be slack in your work. That's what Proverbs teaches. So think about this. 
What does it take for weeds to prosper in your garden? What does it take for the weeds to prosper on your farm? Easy answer, right? Do nothing. (laughs) Right? Just do nothing about the weeds and they will prosper. Laziness and slothfulness is not a friend to prosperous gardens. So all a gardener has to do is nothing. You just leave the garden alone and the weeds will thrive on their own. Well, there's a lesson to be learned in that in regard to our own lives. And and we see this in Romans 12, verse 11. See, the third phrase in that verse is, serve the Lord. Serve the Lord. And serving the Lord has to do with your perspective. It has to do with your priority. Your perspective is who... I serve the Lord. Your, your priority is I serve the Lord. In everything I do, I serve the Lord. Everything we do needs to be consistent with God's Word. And second, be truly in His service to His glory. To, as Corinthians says, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. So if we really lived out that particular phrase in our lives, it would eliminate a great deal of fruitless activity in our lives, wouldn't it? <clears throat> Our lives would then have purpose. Our lives would have meaning. We serve the Lord. We'd be laying up treasure in heaven. We'd be living for the greatest cause of all, which of course is the cause of Christ. And when you do that, even the mundane things, the eating and the drinking, become God-glorifying activities. So my friends, don't let the sovereignty of God and the providence of God suppress you, cause you to sin, to become slothful and lazy. That is sadly one effect that it has on people. But instead, may it help us to be fervent, to be passionate, to serve the Lord. And so my friends, serve the Lord. But as you serve the Lord, trust, believe, have faith in a God who is sovereign. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, may we get this balance right. We're thankful that you do reign supreme over all of your creation. And we do see your providence even at work within the church. And there's some wonderful timeless truths we have learned from the book of Acts. May we take these to heart. May we see them, know them, believe them. May we live this glorious doctrine out in our lives every day. May may you protect us from the sin of slothfulness and laziness. When we are, would you convict our sinful hearts of those sins? And may we serve you with with fervency, with, with great passion and zeal. But as we do that, may we not do it in our own strength, because we, we, we can't. May we trust in you fully, believe in you, walking in faith, walking by faith as we serve you. May we not do it by sight. So by your grace, enable us to serve you. By your grace, enable us to trust you in everything and for everything. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.